Hi, and welcome to podcast number 39, brought to you by Help with Parkinson's. Today, our guest is Dr. Supermanian, movement disorder specialist from Hershey Medical Center in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And I'm your host, Warren Butfinick. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sue. Hello. Thank you again for having me. Thanks for coming. Welcome. So, so today we have something that you must have mentioned a thousand times over your career, but it sort of just goes over people's heads when you talk about it. It's the uh, Hone and Yer scale and the Univer- Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale, yep. how, you, how you figure out what, what phase of Parkinson's somebody's in. Could you start us off with that, and I'll come in a little bit later? Sure. Um, so Hone and Yer scale uh, is named after two very well-established um, neurologists, um, Melvin Yar and Dr. Hone, uh, two um, neurologists who were based out of uh, mostly New York. They published in 1967 a uh, rating scale for Parkinson's disease. And it's for over the many years, it's remained a uh, gold standard for how we look at Parkinson's disease over time. Now, you have to remember that when this paper was published in 1967, uh, Parkinson's did not have a lot of very good treatment. For example, carbidopa levodopa, the medicine that we use a lot, uh, was not yet available. So uh, it was prior to the carbidopa levodopa era. And at that time, mostly Parkinson patients were treated with medications that were not very effective. Um, they had mild or very modest improvement in symptoms. So that is an important thing to remember while we talk about the staging. So at that time, they described five stages of disease. Stage one of Parkinson's disease, which they classified as the earliest stage, and uh, it was mild. And one of the classic features is the involvement of only one side of the body and what we call unilateral involvement. And there is almost no or minimal functional impairment. Symptoms of the Parkinson's disease at this stage are so mild that the person doesn't think or needs medical attention or uh, goes to see a physician and oftentimes they might say, well, it's something that you can wait, you don't need to take medication yet, uh, this sort of thing. But we're increasingly recognizing that early stage, stage one disease, is an important stage when patients do need to seek medical attention because we are increasingly becoming aware that earlier and earlier we treat, the better the uh, outcomes are for patients. So um, it's important that patients in the earlier stage, even stage one disease, um, get evaluated and seen by a movement disorder doctor or or a Parkinson's specialist. And the second stage, or stage two, is still considered early disease, but it's characterized by symptoms on both sides of the body, or what we call bilateral involvement. And there's very little involvement balance. So midline symptoms are very minimal. Uh, Patients don't have balance loss and things like that. But frequently, uh, patients in stage two have lack of facial expression, uh, decreased blinking, They often have um, soft voice, uh, fading volume. Um, They may have slight slurring of of their uh, speech. They may also have slightly stooped posture. And um, they may have some general slowness in all activities of daily living. 
like shaving, grooming, applying makeup, putting on lipstick, you know, eating, drinking, so on and so forth. And uh, this is then called stage two. So the big difference between stage one and stage two is that stage one only affects one side of the body. Stage two affects both sides of the body. Now, then comes stage three. And in stage three, you do need to have loss of balance. And there is a further slowing of the body. So the balance is compromised um, by the inability to make rapid and automatic changes that people generally are able to make. So for example, uh, if you stand the patient and then stand behind the patient and try to tip them, um, they lose balance by having to take more than two or three steps. And this is considered stage three disease. Now in stage four, um, patient able to walk unassisted, but uh, noticeably incapacitated. Many have to use a walker and many people are not able to have independent lifestyle by the, the time they are in stage four disease. And usually they have bilateral disease with lots of spontaneous falling and um, loss of ability to work independently. So somebody has to help them um, in lots of activities. So, so this would be considered stage four. Stage five uh, is considered the, the highest stage of Parkinson's disease. This is when a person is confined to a wheelchair or to a bed. At stage five, uh, patients are unable to move or rise from a chair or get out of bed without help. They have tendency to fall. They have serious difficulty in movement. They're freezing and they stumble around. And they usually require round-the-clock assistance. Uh, frequently in stage five, patients also have hallucinations and delusions. So these are the things uh, that were in the 1967 paper. Now, of course, because medical treatment has been available and um, it's, it's almost unethical for patients with Parkinson's disease beyond stage one to be not treated, nowadays, in today's world, we really don't see any stage five patients at all. And very rarely do we see, see any stage four patients. So majority of patients that we see now are in Honanyar stage one, two, or some, case, some cases I see stage three patients. Stage four and stage five patients are so rare, uh, we hardly you know, um, see these such patients. So when somebody calls you and says, what stage of disease I'm in, um, it's almost inevitable that I say you are in a stage that's appropriate for you because you're doing very well and medicines are working well. And it's not really important to scratch your heads and see, am I in stage one or stage two or stage three? Because typically, because the medications so work, work so well, especially if you're compliant, these staging uh, one, two, and three, or even if you have to be in four, doesn't mean a whole lot. Um, it meant a lot in 1967 because it changed the way we thought about people. Uh, can you live independently at home? Do you have to have a nursing home? Do you have to have placement? Do you need 24-hour care? These kind of questions were relevant in 1967, but it's not relevant today in 2019 when we have so much um, in terms of treatment available, we don't have to worry about these staging. So the staging is not very important to patients, but it's very important for research. 
Um, and I'll give you one example of staging, how it's important for research and why we still use the Hone and ER staging um, for a variety of different reasons. So this one example has to do with, can we predict disease progression? So can we say when stage one disease, when is it going to become stage two? Now, this can be a very important landmark because if a doctor or a nurse or a scientist is able to predict and say, hey, I can tell when your disease is going to go from stage one to stage two, it may allow the doctor to decide whether they want to be more aggressive with your treatment, less aggressive with your treatment, advise you about career changes, advise you about retirement. These type of things can be advice. So there could be important implications for patients in terms of their long-term um, future. So let's take an example. Let's say a patient is uh, working in a profession where perfection is important. Uh, a good example of that would be a dentist. A dentist has to have a public image of having perfect hands. If they have tremor in their hand and they go to the waiting area and somebody needs their tooth worked on and the hand is trembling, well, the confidence that the client may have in their doctor may rapidly go down. So even though they are in stage one disease, and as we already defined, stage one can be very, very mild, no functional impairment. This doctor, this dentist is able to drill a perfect hole in the teeth and the tremor does not interfere with any of the things that they do, but the public PR perception of the audience, meaning the clientele, whoever is coming to the dental office, is so important that you can't be going out there with the hand trembling. So what do we as neurologists do? If you have a dentist who has Parkinson's disease, we get very aggressive. We give them very good treatment, and we try to control their tremor with exceptional high-quality medications. And sometimes we even give high doses of medicine because it's important that if we don't treat their tremor aggressively, they lose their career. They cannot work anymore. And that's really not because of the tremor, but it's the public perception, perception that the tremor is actually going to make their job harder to do. Now, imagine this um, dentist is under my care and I'm giving this person high doses of the medication. And if I can predict when this person is going to go to stage two, when both their hands are going to be affected, the balance could be off so they could start falling. At that point, the dentist may decide, you know what, it ain't worth for, worth for me to work anymore. I probably should take retirement or take a different profession, maybe go into a, a consulting business or find a partner who would take over my practice or um, go into um, entrepreneurship where you can start setting up dental clinics and running it with somebody else or some other profession, you know, whatever. So this change in career, I would be able to do it better if I can predict. So we have a lot of studies, a lot of research studies going on where we can look at stage one becoming stage two. Can we predict whether stage one is going to become stage two? And we have one such study going on in Hershey Medical Center, which is funded by the National Institute of Health, where we're looking at olfactory function, smell function. It turns out patients with one side affected can only smell from one side of their brain. And if they're both sides are affected, then both sides of the brain are affected for the smell function. 
So we can use the smell function as a predictor of when the disease goes from one side to the other, or at least we think it could be. So we're doing research to look for that. Another similar thing we're doing is to look at what we call transcranial ultrasound, where we can actually take a picture using ultrasound waves of the brain and predict whether disease goes from one side to the other. So this is an example of how, for research purposes, stage one and stage two is important. And one other last point that I like to make here is that medication will mask the symptoms. So let's go over that. If a patient is coming to see a doctor for the very first time, just being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, they're not taking any medicines at all. Well, in that case, it's easy for the doctor to say if only one side is affected or the other side is not affected. So if they're in stage one, it's very easy to detect it. Now, if they're already treated with medicine and you wait for a few years, three, four, five years, whatever, then you want to detect whether one side is affected or both sides are affected. It's very hard to do that because if the patient is taking medicine, the medicine, after all, goes to both sides of the brain and it will suppress the symptoms on both sides of the brain. So in order to detect symptoms on the unaffected side, we actually have to ask the patient to stop the medicine. So, which is very hard to do because if you're taking medicine for a long time, you say, okay, you should stop taking your medicine and come back to see us. It's not very practical and it's very difficult for patients. So we compromise. We usually ask them to not take medicine just in the morning. They can take all their medicines until late in the evening, but first thing in the morning they come and they don't take their medicine. What we call practically defined off state. And we try to guess during that time whether the disease has gone to both sides or is just only on one side. It's still only a guess, and it's really hard because, um, again, as I said, it's very unpractical to take patients off medicines for a long time. So in summary, what we covered are the five stages of Hone and Yar, as described in 1967 by Melvin Yar and his colleague um, Hone. And between the two of them, um, they came up with these uh, scales But in today's practical world, stage four and stage five is extremely rare. We don't hardly see any of patients in that that, uh, state of affairs. We usually stay stage one, two, and three. Most commonly, stage two and three are uh, very common. Stage one is less common because many people still don't seek attention early in their disease. And then finally, I gave you some examples of how we use horn and yard staging for research purposes and how to predict stage one, how it transitions to stage two, and how it might be important in certain professions, like, for example, a dentist, uh, firefighter, um, things like that, where public perception of um, tremor can be quite disabling. Thanks. So uh, in this 2010 study, it seems fairly large, 695 people, it showed the stages of how long it takes to get through each stage. Have you seen that chart? Dr. Yep. Sue, yep. is, that, is that chart accurate? Because it seems like it's only 13 years between all the stages. It's like so stage again, I mean, I, I, right. So that, that paper obviously came from the idea of taking averages. Mm-hmm. And, um, and again, as the audience knows, and I'm sure you know, Warren, we have had enormous advances in the field of Parkinson's therapeutics and we have become better and better in how we give medications. So 
the 13 year progression is really an average. It doesn't really mean that individual patients will be in that way. And because we have better treatment options, we really have changed the staging. So most people, and uh, we can address this on a personal level, and I'm sure Warren, you would agree with this, that there are many, many, many patients in early stages of the disease who remain in the early stages of the disease for 10 plus years. Right. And so we really can't extrapolate an, an average statistical figure and say, this is going to happen to you. We can't even predict and say, based on statistics, you are only going to have 13 years before you go from one this stage to the other stage or get to the very terminal stage. So I, I personally think that's an oversimplification and it doesn't apply to individual patients. We really still need um, a doctor to uh, take a very close look at a patient's progression and say, aha, this is what's happening for you. And, and, and again, I think the, at the end of the day, the most important thing is that the staging is not really practically important for day-to-day aspects of any, any patient. You, whether you are in stage one, two, or three, it has no implication whatsoever on a day-to-day basis. Now, if you're able to predict stage one to stage two, that might be interesting for certain professions. I gave some examples just now. Uh, but then again, if you already have it, how does it make a difference? It doesn't, right? I mean, Right. So, so it seems like the two years between stages two to three or three to four, it seems like a lot of that could have been masked by symptoms that aren't really the progression of the disease, just more problems the patient's having in a daily life. Correct. Because uh, nothing that's been on the market, at least till now, has slowed the progression of Parkinson's disease. Correct. So it's got to be something other than the progression. So I guess if somebody has trouble getting around, the doctor could put them in a stage four. E- even though on the right medication, they could be in a stage two. Correct. I think that's exactly right. right. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the main rating scale that I want to talk to you about is, is the uh, Unified Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale. That's that's the one you use on a daily basis for your patients. Is that true? Right. And, that, and that's the one that I think people get a little confused with because it uh, it's ratings of zero to four, and there's a bunch of questions that the highest is a is 199 points and the lowest is zero and zero is zero is the best, right? Right. Exactly. So, yeah. um, so could you explain that? Cause I think that's the one that people have a little trouble understanding. Right. So the unified Parkinson's disease rating scale, UPDRS has been a gold standard for Parkinson's disease management. Particularly it was devised as a research tool And it still remains primarily a research tool, but it does have some practical um, benefit for doing it uh, every time a patient is getting seen. Because the UPDRS incorporates many of the important things that a doctor needs to ask a patient on a daily basis or every, every periodic basis when they see. So for example, the Part one of the UPDRS deals with cognitive function, thinking, memory, depression, mood, uh, motivation, anxiety, uh, sleep, and dreaming. These are the things that is um, primarily included. Uh, This is an important thing, and as we have discussed in our other podcasts, 
these non-motor symptoms are important. So uh, just by asking four questions and rating them on a scale, as you just said, you know, zero through four, where you are able to say you don't have anything or you have really terrible, um, you can actually get a very good, quick overview of what your condition is with your mind. Then stage, the, the second part, part two of the UPDRS, deals with uh, activities of daily living. For example, speaking, um, swallowing, drooling, uh, writing, reading, uh, shaving and grooming, and uh, toileting, uh, movement, uh, walking, balance, um, pain, all these things that are activities of daily living, things that you do on a daily basis, is captured in stage two or the uh, second part, part two of the uh, UPDRS. Then we have part three. Now, part three is the most robust part of the UPDRS. This is the part where the doctor asks you to put your hands out, take your finger, touch your nose, tap with your right hand between the index finger and the thumb, um, and then do the same thing with the foot, uh, we stomp on the ground with the right with the heels, um, and then we ask them to open and close their fist. We ask them to um, turn the palm upwards and downwards in a rapid succession, what we call supination pronation movement. And then we ask the patient to get out of the chair with the hand crossed across their chest. And then we ask them to walk 30 feet in a brisk pace, turn around, walk back. And then we also do what we call the pull test, where somebody's standing behind the patient and trying to tip over and see whether they take one or two steps and whether they're able to balance themselves or not. And then finally, we also check at muscle tone. And that's an exercise where the doctor is feeling across the joint to see whether the mus- muscles are stiff and if so, how stiff they are using some objective measures that the doctor or the uh, nurse has already learned from testing other hundreds of patients and hundreds of normal people to gauge uh, how tight the muscles are. So uh, this combination of all these things is part of uh, what we call part three of the UPDRs. And then there's a final part, which is part four. Part four deals with complications of therapy. Example, dyskinesias, dystonias, uh, nausea, uh, lack of sleep. Uh, These type of things, you know, things that are related to complications of therapy. So now the four parts, part one, part two, part three, and part four together form the unified Parkinson's disease rating scale. Now, uh, one of the good things about the UPDRS or the unified Parkinson's disease rating scale is that if it is correctly done by a trained person who really knows how to do it, it can be quite valuable tool to measure disease progression over time. Now, all those statements that I just said is very important. UPDRs requires training. What do you mean by training? When you say training, it's called inter-rater reliability. This means the people who invented this, this scoring system, they put together a video and they have a training exercise and they ask you to go and rate several patients, typically about 20 patients, and there's video that instructs how to do the rating, 
And once you do the rating, you send the scores to the people who invented the score, and you compare it to how the people who invented would rate that particular patient. And you have to score almost the same as what the original inventors scored. That is meant by inter-rater reliability. Two different raters or more than one rater getting the same reliable score. Now, this is very important. If you don't have that type of inter-rater reliability, then it's a useless score. Because if you just randomly score people based on how you feel about somebody, that's not a valid score. Your validity of your score has to come from having done it many times and have a reliability for the score. Now, the other most important thing about the UPDRS is that it has to be interpreted in context. So, for example, if you take somebody who had a mild stroke and did the UPDRS on them, you still get a valid score and make you look like you have Parkinson's disease. And you can make it even look like you have Parkinson's disease on one side of your body because if you ask them to move their fingers and tap them, they wouldn't be able to do it because they had a mild stroke. Their facial expression may be a little bit down because they had a stroke again. Uh, the blink on one side of the eye may be a little less because they had a stroke. So a stroke patient can may made to look like a Parkinson patient if you didn't know the context. You didn't know that they had a stroke. Right? You didn't know what their history was. So in other words, UPDRS or the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale cannot be used randomly. It cannot be used in isolation. It cannot be used without proper training or integrative reliability. It is a tool, and it's a tool that is valid only when used in context, understanding the value of it, and also being properly trained and having had the experience to do a lot of these patients over a lot of period of time and becoming quite um, mastered the tool and know how to use it. And typically, this can only happen if you have done a movement disorder fellowship or spend many years treating Parkinson's patients in, in a specialty practice where you really hone in your skills and really become very good at doing it. This is not a trivial tool, and it should not be used in a cavalier fashion. Unfortunately, many people use it without the proper training. Uh, many people even have used it as a self-rating scale. Uh, they just use the scale to say, I can just fill this out myself. I can tap my finger. I can write down what. This is not the way it should be used. It's not a very useful tool for self-application. It really should be used only with people who are well-trained. Now, training does not mean that you have to be a doctor. You could be a very well-trained nurse or you could be a very well-trained other medical professional, but still requires considerable training. And when I say considerable, we're talking about literally rating hundreds of patients over many years and learning through experience what, how to interpret each of these scores. So uh, it's not something that somebody should go and learn over a few days and say, well, I know how to do this. Uh, that's not a valid way to do it. And uh, it can be quite problematic if it's used that way. The other last but most important thing, which I would like to say is that because it's so um, specialized and also it has the inter-rate of reliability issue, 
we typically think that when you're doing the UPDRS, Unified Parking Disease Rating Scale, the same rater should consistently rate the person over time. So if you ask several people to do the rating, so one visit is one doctor, another visit is another doctor, third visit is the PA, fourth visit is somebody else, it's not a very valid score because oftentimes the way one person rates is different from how the other, other person rates unless there's a unified Parkinson's disease rating scale, inter-rater reliability established between uh, these individuals. And that's often not the case, especially in a multi-speciality practice where they're not only seeing Parkinson's patients, they're seeing other patients. They don't have this type of um, skill and they don't have the time to develop this type of skill or have the subspeciality interest in seeing exclusively Parkinson's patients to develop this type of skill. So bottom line is the UPDRS is a good tool. It can be used, but it has to be very carefully used by uh, properly trained personnel who actually know how to use it. Good. And uh, just wanted to bring up the simplistic form of it is there's four sections, but there's 50 questions total. And that's why four, the worst of case of four times the 50 is roughly 200. So, um, it's, it's not just four, four questions, it's 50 questions, because each one you give a grade to. Is that correct? That's right. So, I mean, uh, for example, uh, I think you may make a good point. So, for example, tremor, uh, it's not tremor score of, of the whole body. Each part of your body gets a different score. Okay? Left-hand tremor, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4. Right-hand tremor, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4. Right leg, um, left leg, head and neck. So for each body part, um, you give different scores. So just for tremor alone, uh, there is a possibility of, you know, 20 points uh, that you could get just for tremor alone, depending on which part of your body. And if you happen to have tremor all over your body, you could get a maximum of 20 points for just tremor alone. So you're right. I mean, it's not a very simple scale. It has a lot of complexity to it. Um, but the number is not the key thing. The way you learn how to do it and do it correctly is probably the most important thing. Right. Okay, because I uh, just want everybody to understand that it's a complicated score. But could you break that down into from the, roughly from the stages to the score, or is that impossible to do? Well, again, I think that's, um, that's a nuanced answer, but uh, the simplified answer is that if the scores are all on one side of your body, right? So if your tremor scores are all on the left side and your bradykinesia score, which is the tapping of the finger, opening and closing of the hand, uh, tapping with your foot, kind of uh, those kinds of things, they're all on one side of your body. Then your scores on that side of the body will be all positive, And on the other side of your body will be zeros uh, very close to zero. You might get an occasional one or something like that, but uh, predominantly on one side. And also symptoms that involve the midline, like for example, balance, which involves both right and left side of your body. Uh, swallowing difficulty, which again, if you think about it, it's right in the middle of the body, so it can't be to the left or to the right. It has to be both sides. These type of scores are usually low when you are in stage one. Stage one patients have very little midline symptoms. Uh, they're very little balance loss. Um, oftentimes, stage one patients don't have 
uh, loss of blinking. Uh, they don't have mass species. Uh, often they have no freezing. They don't have uh, any of those common things that we fear for Parkinson's disease, usually not there. They primarily have tremor in one limb. They have a little bit of slowness when they do the finger tapping. They may have a little bit of slowness when they do the foot tapping, but that's about it. And they may have a little bit of rigidity. So, so low scores, typically, you know, less than 20, and all on one side of your body, uh, usually means stage one disease. If you have bilateral disease, left and right side of the body is involved, typically the scores are much higher, and uh, total scores could be in the 40s and 50s, because you have both sides affected now. Uh, and usually there's balance loss, and uh, especially on the tipping test where we pull you backwards and see whether you can hold your balance, usually that is affected. And now you're slipping into stage three, you know, you're having more difficulty with balance issues, um, and then the scores are a little higher at that time. So I think um, for the practical purposes right now, I don't think thinking about beyond stage three is really meaningful because it's super rare to see stage four and stage five patients these days unless they're mismanaged or for some reason they can't take their medicines or they're poorly compliant. These are the only reasons why you would see stage four right. and stage five. Yeah. Is, there, is there a reason why somebody should ask their doctor what their state, stage is? where the score is each time they go for an appointment? Not really. I think that's uh, sort of giving you the false belief that the number really means anything. Right. I think more important is to ask the doctor, how am I doing overall? Am I doing well for having disease for X number of years? That I think is a much more useful term. And in most cases, the doctor can give a very good guesstimate for the stage of disease, like the years of disease that you've had. We had disease for 10 years. How are you doing? If you're still in stage one after 10 years of disease, that's fantastic. That's lovely. If you are in stage two after 13 or 14 years, it's still lovely because mm -hmm. most people um, wouldn't even expect that after 13 years, you'll be in stage two disease. And after 25 years, you're still in stage two or stage three, which is usually what I see in most of my patients. Well, you're doing fantastic. You're doing lovely, you know? Mm -hmm. Good. Okay. And, uh, we have this other thing here I found, the Schwab in England, Activities of Daily Living. Yes. That kind of goes along with the, the Parkinson's testing. So the three things, all three things give three different things, right? I mean, so hone and yar is a very simplistic, am I in stage one, stage two, stage three, that kind of thing, where stage one means the one side of your body, stage two means both sides of the body, stage three is that your balance is affected, that kind of thing. Uh, it doesn't give granularity. It doesn't give details. If you do the UPDRS, Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale, it gives you more granularity. What part of your limbs are affected, your fingers are affected, your foot is affected. Your, um, and it also gives you functional scales for different things like eating, drinking, uh, walking, sitting and getting out of bed, uh, grooming, shaving, so on and so forth. It gives you some granularity of how the person is affected how much they're affected. So the UPDRS is helpful in that way. The last part is the Schwab in England is how independent are you? How much dependent are you on somebody else helping you? Can you do things on your own? So basically Schwab in England just asks you whether you are totally independent, which is 
uh, 90% is that you need uh, not not totally you need a little bit of uh, slowness you need a little bit of help with different things but you still are independent you don't need to ask anybody to help you out and 80% is a little less and 70% is a little less and it's basically gives by 10 point decrements you know it's 100 90 80 70 60 like that and basically you are asking whether you're independent or not how much independence you have for your day-to-day living. So all three measures give three different things and they're all linked and they're helpful. So typically for research purposes, we need all three things. We need uh, the uh, Honanyar and we need the UPDRS and we need the Schwab in England. So usually they all go hand in hand. We do all of them together. Okay. And uh, I was thinking, do you think it pays for patients to stagger their their visits to the doctor to make sure that they're not masking some bad side effects of the Parkinson's that normally they have at home that you wouldn't see in the office. That's an interesting thought. So um, we don't deliberately do that, um, but often by accident, that's how it happens. Uh, so if in February you saw the doctor on at 8 a.m. in the morning and you are scheduled to see the patient again in six months, should you ask for an appointment in the afternoon so that the doctor can see how you are in the afternoon? It's not unreasonable. You can certainly think about doing it that way because if you have a variable day and the morning is different from afternoon versus evening, having the doctor see you at different times may actually give them a, a, a better direct perspective of how you're doing. But usually when you come to a doctor, the doctor usually asks, how was your week? Uh, we don't go by how the patient is on a certain time in the room, uh, especially the experienced one. People who have movement disorder experience or work with Parkinson patients for a long time, we recognize that when we see them at a particular moment, it could be deceptively good or deceptively bad. And just within an hour or two, it might be totally different. So we know that there can be a lot of variability. So typically we ask patients, uh, how, how long is your on period? How long is your off period? And sometimes we use a diary, which is called the Hauser diary. Uh, some of you may have um, seen this thing. It's called, it was devised by Robert Hauser, who's a movement disorder doctor in Tampa, Florida. It's basically uh, every half hour rating of whether you're off, on, awake, or sleep. And basically ask you to put a cross across each of those time points. And, if you, and it also has two additional columns is this on with the dyskinesia, on with troublesome dyskinesia. So um, you have all these things written down and you just mark it for the whole day. Of course, when you're asleep, you just say asleep, asleep, asleep. When you're on and everything's working well, you just say on. And if you're on with dyskinesia, whether it's troublesome or non-troublesome, it can be a useful tool. In some people who have a lot of fluctuations, we sometimes give that to patients and say, fill this diary for a week so that we have some idea on how many off periods you are, how much dyskinesia you have. Uh, this is available um, on the internet. You can download it, you can fill it up. Uh, you do need to be trained to do it. So typically we ask that the patient be shown a video of what troublesome dyskinesia is, what is non-troublesome dyskinesia, and what it looks like. And uh, most of uh, the movement disorder specialists have this type of video available. We certainly have it in our office. We can give that to you and you can look at it um, at your convenience in the office itself. 
or if you want to take it home and look at it and mail it back, you can do that. We have several copies of this um, video training tool. And sometimes we use it, but most often we just simply ask questions. How is your day like? Is your morning different from afternoon? Is there a dose relationship? When you took your medicine, how long does the medicine last? Does it wear off after three hours? And if so, when it wears off, can you tell it's going to wear off? Is it predictable, non-predictable? So these are classic questions that we all ask. And based on your answers, we decide how to modulate your medication. So um, again, I think it's a matter of knowing what to ask and having the experience and realizing how that might change somebody's lives. Um, it comes down to knowing the detail and having the experience doing it for many years. Right. Yeah, because most people, the default time that they go to their, their uh, doctor's offices would all be their best time of the day. Right. Eventually to get that way, but it, it, you need honesty with the patient to actually tell you these things, which I'm sure some of them sort of don't always, they're not always you know, giving it to you freely. Right. And this is more reason why you need to be seen by a specialist in a decent 45-minute visit. You couldn't, you couldn't do a five-minute visit and get all these, all these things done. Agreed. I think it's five minutes way too short, uh, not sufficient to do a detailed exam. Right. Uh, even 15 minutes is not um, sufficient or detailed. So I, I agree. I think we need to do it more. So. Right. Okay. Yeah. Have anything else you'd like to add to this? This, this is. Well, like- I think I think we did fine. I think it's a very good, uh, very good session. We covered a lot of things, and um, hope we do um, similar things more next week. Great. All right. Yeah. Have a good night. Wish you the same. Bye. Bye.